So we're going to touch on it a little bit, but we're examining the construction of the tabernacle. And it's important to recognize that a lot of what we're seeing here are symbols. They're types of Jesus and heaven and eternity in the presence of God. So all of these things are built and designed by God to model what really exists in heaven and to give us uh, that sense of the heavenly in the worship experience. So in this time, uh, this is what the Lord is describing as far as the things that are being constructed. And currently, Exodus chapter 30, verse 1, it says, you shall make an altar to burn incense on, and that becomes significant throughout history for them. You shall make it of acacia wood, that is uh, the hardwood that has been described throughout the building process. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its width, so, you know, distance from the elbow uh, to the middle of the hand, roughly 18 inches is what you're looking at as far as measuring a cubit. It shall be a square. Two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece. With it you shall overlay its top, its sides all around, its horns with pure gold. So it's going to burn incense made of wood, but it's overlaid with gold. You shall make for it a molding of gold all around that upper edge, the two rings. You shall make for it under the molding on both its sides. You shall place them on its two sides and they shall be holders for the poles with which to bear it you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold you shall put it before the veil that is before the ark of the testimony before the mercy seat that is over the testimony where i meet or i will meet with you so this is to burn the incense and we're going to talk about uh, the specifics daily that go on with this, but this is to be set inside the tabernacle in front of the Holy of Holies. So it's going to be before the testimony. That's the tablets that we're going to see, which are kept inside the Ark of the Covenant. And frequently, he'll just refer to the mercy seat. So uh, the mercy seat isn't ever separate from the Ark of the Covenant, and I was having a conversation with some students uh, this week, and uh, whether you're aware it or not, the lid alone for the Ark of the Covenant weighed somewhere around 700 pounds, solid gold. So you can do the math on the value of all of these items as we move on, but this um, you know, is an additional, very ornate, very beautiful presentation of this incense burner. It is inside the tabernacle. In verse 7, it says, Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps. So he's to go in and tend the menorah and trim the wicks and, you know, fill them with the olive oil for the burning for the lamp. And as he attends that, he's also to burn incense here. He shall burn incense on it. Then when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it, a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it. And he's going to explain that there's a very specific recipe that they follow that uh, is supposed to be exclusive to the temple and to the priesthood. And there isn't supposed to be any other incense burnt on it, which is a significant point I'll dwell on a little bit as we move on. Or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. So it's strictly for the burning of incense and this particularly prescribed incense that the Lord is going to give us the details about. Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering for atonement. Once a year he shall make atonement upon it throughout your generations, it is most holy to the Lord. So to take the blood of the offering and put it upon the horns of this altar of incense as the incense is burning. Now, the symbolism continues and the practice continues throughout Jewish history where morning and evening they're coming in and the incense is burned and it's the hour of prayer. 
for the people, it becomes synonymous with prayer. Uh, this incense that is burned, you shouldn't think of, you know, the occasion where you took your little stick and lit it on fire and put it in the burner or your little cone. And this is pulverized incense that's being taken in and being poured on top of flame. So the whole place erupts into a cloud of smell and fragrance and smoke. It's filled and it emerges from the tabernacle and billows into the sky. The people are able to see the hour of prayer has come. They're able to see this is the moment I should be joining everyone in prayer. They have that physical signal for them. And it's a pleasant thing, right? P prayer can be a burden. Our flesh doesn't enjoy it. I've given the illustration countless times of how we can stay up and watch an entire season of who knows what and uh, binge on you know movies endlessly, but open that Bible and within a few syllables you're face down drooling, out cold. Your flesh does not enjoy prayer, does not enjoy naturally, does not enjoy being in the Word. You've got to teach it. You've got to train it. The scripture requires it as, you know, describes it rather as a taste, an appetite. The Lord specifically of having a relationship with him, being in prayer, being in fellowship, says, come taste and see. Right? Uh, you know, you probably have had occasions in your life where uh, you were really sick for lengthy periods of time. And your appetite dies in that process. You couldn't possibly, people offer you and eat no way. Can't eat. Too sick. And then, you know, you kind of get feeling better, but you're still not even hungry, right? Until the food triggers. You eat, you consume, and suddenly the hunger's turned back on. And now you didn't even realize how hungry you were. So it is with our spiritual appetite. You don't eat of this. You don't consume the word of God. You don't consume prayer, fellowship. Take these things in. You'll have no appetite for them. You come and hear the word of God being taught. You come and, you know, bow your heart and try to pray. It's not going to connect. There's going to be a developed appetite that occurs. This appetite for prayer, this is the Lord's intention. Let's begin with this. Let's make it pleasant. Let's make it a thing that's of community where everyone that's in fellowship with one another is all doing the same thing. We want to get them to where they enjoy this. I'm always excited when I get around somebody who's excited about the word. That, that, you know, spurring on that occurs. This moment of prayer becomes especially significant for them throughout history. When you move into the New Testament, you see that this is so many priests and so many people serving that they've begun a process of drawing lots, meaning they are of the tribe of Levi, so they are priests, but there's so many of them now that they have to take their turn and come in and perform these duties. And we have some very significant occasions in the scripture where this offering of sacrifice, this offering of incense, is recognized as coinciding with even Jesus' arrival. You can look at Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 8, it says, so it was that while Zacharias of the division of Abijah, his wife was of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth, was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Show up for his service, draw lots. What's your duty? You're burning incense. So now it says the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. That's where he receives the news from the angel that he is going to have a son born named John the Baptist. And he's going to be the precursor to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. At the hour of prayer, Zacharias goes in to burn incense and meets the angel of the Lord there who's announcing, Gabriel is announcing the coming of John the Baptist and the coming of the Messiah. This burning of incense becomes very, very significant to them. Again, I said it was reflective 
of what's going on in heaven. God gave us these things so that we would have images of what's happening. Well, what's the image in heaven? The scripture explains it. Revelation chapter 8. Look at verse 3. It says, Then another angel, having a golden censer that you would burn incense in, came and stood at the altar. This is in heaven. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which is before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascends before God from the angel's hand. Again, throughout this, you can see God understands. This isn't just a matter, you guys, of God saying, oh, they're very attuned to sense and smell and fragrance, and it embeds memory very well. So, so I'll do this. No, this is a matter of God designing you so that you have this capacity for sense and smell and memory, right? I take you down my memory line and lane each time I get here, but hopefully you're going through your own. You know, fresh baked bread. Come in the house to fresh baked bread unexpectedly. I'm like nine in Sheila Cass's house. She's baking bread every day when I was a kid, selling it, had a little business. Fresh baked bread was common in my house. That, that invokes all kinds of memories. I, I've talked to you before about how just the slight smell of kerosene or heating oil, a little bit of cigarettes, grease, my grandfather's car. Growing up, just I, I smell that now. Walk into the right location where those fragrances are already in place, and instantly I'm there. You have similar experience. God wants this with His worship, that when His people come in, there's a a heartfelt trigger. That's the smell of worship. I can smell this. That is a thing that draws my heart back to God. God, here, if none of that makes any difference to you, here's here's my point. God wants you to have a pleasant experience in worship. God wants you to come and have an enjoyable time. God wants you to, to you know, being here in fellowship, experience something that is deep and moving to you, that you hold to, that you, that you love, and that it's part of your person. So, so the Lord building this incense altar and putting this in place for them, this remains in place as a people. You can guarantee, you guys, if they're hundreds of miles away, if they're thousands of miles away, and they smell something that's even similar to this worship, right? Maybe there are certain spices that we're going to read about that are incorporated into the anointing oil and into the uh, incense that's being created. You just smell like this cinnamon or smell something. It's going to inspire their hearts and minds. God wants to touch them with all of their senses and involve them in this act of worship. Whether we're accomplishing that or not here, my point is this. This is the experience God wants you to have. He wants you to have an experience with him that is deep, emotional, fulfilling. Not something that's just you walk in here and you know you get some shallow experience and then they usher you out the door. The Lord wants us to be an emotional, a full, you know, creative experience. Verse 11, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when you take the census of the children of Israel... For their number, then every man shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord. When you number them, that there may be no plague among you when you number them. This is what everyone among those who are numbered shall give. Half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A shekel is 20 giras. I know that helps you with your, you know, math. Oh, 20 giras. Now it makes sense. The half shekel shall be an offering to the Lord. Everyone, including among you, those who are numbered from 20 years old and above, shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall not give more and the poor shall not give less than half a shekel when you give an offering to the Lord to make 
atonement for yourselves. Uh, so again, you know, these words that we turn into Christianese that people don't understand, atonement. You know, we hear, oh, you got to give an offering, atonement for sin, and you, you get the impression like God's angry about your sin. Uh, the the word is exactly um, a compound structure. It's a, there's no more definition to it than break it down into the three words or the three syllables at one meant. God wants you to be at one with Him. When He says you got to do this to pay for atonement, this is not God saying you owe me. This is God saying you were destined for hell. You were completely separated from me. I am life. The only thing to experience if you're not going to spend eternity with me is death. You want, you want to experience the at-one-ment with God? Then you need to pay the price for your life. You need to redeem yourself. You need to give a sum of money at this time, the Lord is saying, that will show you to yourself, I've been redeemed. I've been purchased. This is not something that I have done. I didn't show up here and I'm so good that God said, oh, well, I got to take this one. He's perfect after all. She's beautiful. Well, I guess I got to have her. That's not what the Lord is doing at all. He's, he's showing us that in and of ourselves, and interesting to me to be reading the book of Isaiah in our midweek study and see there all it takes for the Lord to, uh, to or the nation of Israel to experience his destruction. It says, and the Lord just turned his face away from them. Just, just, just God turning his face away from his people causes them to see there's an enemy out there that wants to kill us all. There's a destroyer. That wants to bring an end to all things. And what we're experiencing in the life that we have and the breath that we leave is God's grace. He's protecting us day to day. We don't recognize that God is constantly right. We we blame him for everything, don't we? You know, this tornado occurs, and oh, it was an act of God. And that earthquake happens. Oh, that was an act of God. Oh, if we look at what the scripture has to say, one more time, brothers and sisters, there are two parties responsible for those terrible tragedies. One is the devil himself. The second one's the human race. We, we have rejected God. We have rejected the one who has protected us all along the way. And more and more, his hand is being pulled back, not by him, by our sin. We're separating ourselves from God. I mean, you know, you look around and, you know, Columbine High School kicks off a long spree of schoolyard shootings and everybody's going, what is happening? How could all this violence? You kicked God out of schools in 1963. And you've been continuously generating this mindset in those environments ever since then. A godless environment. What do you expect? You invite God back into those environments, I'll guarantee you they'll change. They'll change. How quickly, how positively, that has everything to do with the degree to which you let God back in those environments. You rip the doors off and just let them in wholesale, you'd see a complete overhaul of what's going on in all those schools. Rejection of God. That's what brought us to the place we're in as a culture. You, you got to redeem yourself, the Lord is saying. You have to recognize the existence of God, and you need to come in, and you need to give this sum of money as a confession of, I was doomed to death. It's a submission to his will to make atonement for yourselves. You shall take the atonement money of the children of Israel and shall appoint it for the service of the tabernacle of meeting. All of that money needs to go into making sure that people are capable of coming together and worshiping the Lord in this way. The priests receive their offering and their pay from other sources. The atonement, that needs to make sure the doors are open. You need to make sure that the people can come there and worship and be in the presence of the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, For you were bought at a price. Therefore... Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, 
which are God's, right? We read that statement where Jesus is questioned about, should we pay taxes? Do we pay taxes to this wicked government, Rome? Is that what we're supposed to do? And Jesus answers, right? And he says, you know, whose image is on this? And then, you know, Caesar. We'll render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And the people always miss, in my opinion, the second statement. Render to God that which is God's. What's God's? Everything. Right? What did we just read here? You know, that the Lord is giving you this opportunity because he has redeemed your life. You, you, you have been saved by him as a people and as an individual. Deserves our worship. Deserves our obedience. 30 verse 17. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, excuse me, you shall also make a laver, so a large basin of bronze, with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it for Aaron and his sons to wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. Now, this washing that goes on and this labor, the bronze labor inside, historically, we are told, this whole thing was highly polished. Inside was polished mirror. When these men stepped up to wash, it was supposed to be they would be struck with the fact that their image is being reflected back to them. They're immediately going to be able to see where things need to be washed off. You know what I'm talking about when some beard will teach you that really quickly. You know, you eat whatever and, you know, remnants remain. And now you look like the goofball who's got crickets in his beard. You know, so. Unless you've got a good friend near you who also has a beard. Because he knows the same dilemma. So he'll look you in the face and go... And you go, I got something. And you do, and you clean it, right? Beard brothers got to look out for beard brothers. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Some of us know, others don't. Just The point, sometimes stuff's got to be pointed out to you. You're not going to automatically recognize where something, the, the mirror, the mirror of God's word reflects back to us what must be seen, right? Isn't this what James tells us in the New Testament about the person who doesn't obey the word is like the one who looks in the mirror, immediately recognizes the problem and then forgets and walks away and leaves it alone, right? You wake up having slept straight on your face all night and your hair's wrapped around your head and you look in the mirror and, oh, you're shocked. And I can't. And then you just put your clothes on and walk out the door. And you get to work, and everybody that greets you is like, hey, you know, tough morning, you know, I just been in a car wreck. What's going on? Yeah. Look in the mirror of God's word, immediately forget you're just like the person who saw the problem in the mirror and didn't do anything about it. These men have to look into these highly polished brass lavers and see their own reflection and know what needs to be cleaned off. There's a tremendous picture of God's word there. No matter what area of ministry we're involved in, right? Wherever these guys are going, coming and going out of the temple, walking in, going to burn incense, whatever you're doing for the Lord, you better clean before you do that. You need to be clean before you do that. Not going to be ready unless we are cleaned, follow what Ephesians chapter 5 says. Maybe this will put it in a better understanding. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And every man in the room will spend the remainder of his days trying to do something like that. Verse 26, that he may sanctify 
and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. I'll tell you, in this room especially, brothers, if you want a blessed relationship with your spouse, you need to be a man who's personally in the word and you are personally also doing everything you can to see that the word is part of your wife's life. That's your responsibility, not hers. It isn't that you're going to read to her every day. Maybe you are. But you're going to make sure as a husband you are doing everything you can to help your wife be bathed and washed in the water of God's word. It's a necessity. No? Okay? We'll just talk between you and I for a minute. All you ladies can just not pay attention. Okay? Is she difficult to live with? Is she hard? Is, is, is there something about her that you know needs to change? You're never going to be able to affect any of that. The only thing that's going to do it is God's word. So you have to do what you can to ensure that it's flowing into her life. Giving her time, giving her space, giving her resources, whatever it takes to assist her in that. Like I say, if that's you reading her the word, then read her the word. But you must ensure that she's being washed in the water of the word. Same with your children. These bronze lavers are set here as that symbolism for us, for what is meant by these priests washing their hands and their feet. Now I'll go to the next thing in that regard, right? So let's think about the washing of the feet in the New Testament. Jesus takes the apostles, right? And he washes their feet. And we get that wonderful commentary because in the midst of it, Peter says, nope, you're not washing my feet. That's the job of the lowest servant in the household. And you're king of all creation. And you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash your feet, then you've got no part of me. So Peter then pendulum swings back to the other side of the issue and then says, okay, then I need the full bath. <clears throat> if it comes down to being in your kingdom, then just head to toe. Just forget this whole foot washing thing. And Jesus there says, no, I've already cleansed you by the washing of the water of my word. So why do I have to have my feet washed? Why is Jesus washing their feet? Because living in this world will make you filthy. The contact you have with this world, your feet, your spiritual walk, and what your hands touch are constantly being tainted. Now, have you held the remote control in your hand for less than five minutes in the past week? then you need to have your hands washed spiritually and our mind washed and our walk, our feet. There needs to be the constant washing of our hands and our feet. Christ has cleansed our heart with his blood, with his word. But there's that constant daily, right? We can't do that thing either to paint the picture full. We can't go, well, I went to church that one time. I prayed the prayer. I walked up. I was saved. They washed me. The word of God touched my heart and mind and forever changed me. Right. And you walked out the door back into your everyday life that is sinful. You're no worse a sinner than me. You're probably less of a sinner than me. We need the constant cleansing of God's word to keep what our hands are handling pure and where our feet are going aligned with God's word. Without it, we end up in terrible places in terrible circumstances. 30 verse 22 says, Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, You also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of myrrh, half as much sweet-smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels. 250 shekels of sweet-smelling cane. 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. A hen of olive oil. And you shall make from them a holy anointing oil. An ointment compound according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it, you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting, 
the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings with its utensils, the laver and its base. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister to me as priests. So this description of this anointing oil that is given here, God's going to actually attach a death penalty, death penalty to this. I'm not trying to let the cat out of the bag, but this is so exclusively supposed to be the fragrance of his priests and everything associated with his worship, that if anyone tries to duplicate this anointing oil and incense, they're to be put to death. God wants his act and articles of worship to be unique. That, that you can't go to some other place that's unholy. You can't go down to the local nightclub and they've also got this fragrance in their whole system of things. God doesn't want people to say, I don't really care for that fragrance of the temple. I more prefer the fragrance from this other institution and location that I attend. Let's bring that fragrance up here and make it the fragrance of our tabernacle. No way. God says, this is going to be unique to me. Listen, as I go through this, it's very important that you understand how opposed God is to making the church worldly. There's much of the church today that looks at that as the best marketing plan. How are we going to get all the people in here? How are we going to make this a popular location? How are we going to make people enjoy church? We're going to make it like the world. Let's do all the stuff that the world does. Let's do all the things. Let's make it you know, attractive in that way. In the end, if you've stolen from God, if it's not his Holy Spirit drawing people in here to sit down and listen to the word of God, if we've done it through some other earthly trickery, if your flesh is in this room because it is appealing to your flesh to be in this room, then we've created an environment that God did not intend. I'm not saying that church has to be stale, not unenjoyable. I'm not describing that in any way. There's so, so many problems that have been generated by creating a worldly environment in the church in order to draw people in. This is actually the plan of what's called the church growth movement. You can literally just go home and type in church growth movement, and you're going to come up with a half a dozen websites where these organizations help churches like us get bigger. And this is, this is the root of their plan, right? They come in here, they say this few people in here, and they make the assessment of you. 80% of the people that are in this room are here from some worldly, fleshly, sinful reason. There's, there's only 20% in this room who are here for spiritual reasons. And amongst them, there's only 10% that are deeply committed. This isn't my assessment of you. This is the church growth movement assessment of us. So what they do is they tell us preachers, you're doing it all wrong. You preach the Bible, you talk about sin, you talk about punishment, you talk about hell, you drive people out the door. There's only 20% of your congregation that can even handle hearing that. There's only 10% of your congregation that will actually embrace that idea. What you need to stop doing is preaching to the 10% and start preaching to the 80 you need to fashion and organize and construct your church so that those people that are there for fleshly, worldly, ungodly, perhaps even sinful reasons, they'll want to come to your church. Build your church for the 80%. The 20 is always going to be there no matter what. You understand what a completely corrupt place that ends up building? Okay, this isn't just a matter of me sitting here going, no, I'm way better than that. I'm way more spiritual than that. I couldn't tolerate that stuff around me. No, here's my issue, right? I know for certain as a pastor, not all of you are healthy spiritually and strong or mature. So now 
As a pastor, I'm going to try to increase the number of people who are immature and ungodly and weak and sinful in the congregation. So that what? They're helping one another stumble and destroying one another. I don't agree with their numbers, but let's just say the 80-20-10 scenario works. Okay? Let's say that works. I need to preach to the 20%. So that the 20% will be working inside the 100%, helping everybody grow up. We got to get strong. You have to be mature. If you haven't noticed, there's an incredibly wicked world outside our doors. And if we're going to be the salt and the light that goes out and saves the world, I've got to preach to the 20%. I'm doing my best to not offend and drive the 80% out the door. But I have a responsibility before God. And, And here's the thing. So don't you. Have a responsibility before God to know, accept, learn, and live these things out. Enough ranting? Everybody with me? Good. So, you didn't have to say yes so wholeheartedly. Enough ranting? Yes! That was my wife, but anyway. Teasing you. 30 verse 31. It says, And you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, This shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It is holy. It shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off. Now, uh, this statement of being cut off from the people. It can literally mean that they will be put to death. It can mean that. Uh, It more likely means that the Lord is saying they'll have to leave. They'll be cut off from the people. They'll be excommunicated and put out. Now, as far as we know, that never took place. What we do know is that the temple ended up being very corrupt. The priesthood itself started bringing sexual symbols in and setting them up in the tabernacle and performing lewd acts of worship uh, even inside the temple and the tabernacle. So, you know, eventually it becomes a completely corrupt thing. But within the statement, whether the people obeyed it or not, we just heard what God's intention was. Was that his place and people of worship would be uniquely distinct from the rest of the world. There should be no confusion or mixture. Everyone should easily be able to identify you as being associated with that worship. You go into an environment where this is the air is filled with this smoke and everything has been anointed with this oil. You're going to come out smelling like this, right? No? You haven't picked up many smoking hitchhikers, have you, over the years? He's put one in the car for five minutes and, you know, you smell like cigarettes again. So you get in this environment and it's going to permeate you, right? You visited Nana and left and thought, are there mothballs everywhere? I can't, you know, you get certain fragrances stuck in your nose and it's with you. So it is with the Lord. 34, the Lord said to Moses, take sweet spices, stage, ancha, gadmium, pure frankincense, With these sweet spices, there shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make these an incense, a compound, according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure, and holy. You shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, where I will meet with you, shall be most holy to you. But as for the incense, which you shall make, you shall not make any for yourselves, According to its composition, it shall be to you holy for the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. Again, either excommunicated or literally put to death. Now, 
As I describe these things and I get all impassioned about them, we shouldn't think that the world is just automatically going to have the same joy and experience that we do when we bring them in to worship. To them, it may be repulsive. Our faith, which we enjoy so well amongst one another and share with one another, lifts our hearts, gives us joy. You know, you go out the door with that zeal and share it with the world and it just falls flat. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning at verse 15, says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other aroma of life leading to life. People are not going to always have the same reaction to us and our worship. Wish they did. Wish that they would all respond positively and positively and worship the Lord with us, but they're not going to. For some people, it's going to be extremely offensive, and that's okay. That's okay. If the Lord's going to change their appetite for these things, that's something He's going to do, not something we're going to do. We share with them just like you would, right? You know, light the candle, light the incense. That's how you share. You don't, you, don't, you don't light 15 different candles for 15 different people in the room. That's going to end up making one big fragrance that's all mixed together. Our life is supposed to be singular, led for Christ. We go and minister to the world. Some people are going to enjoy that fragrance. Other people are going to say, that smells like death. I don't want anything to do with that. You don't change who you are based upon how you are received. Live for Christ. Let them have their own reaction to those circumstances. Look at Exodus chapter 31, at least briefly with me. We'll get through some of this. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uriah, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. Everybody remembers him. Filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze and cutting jewels and setting, carving wood to work in all manner of workmanship. Now, I just want to encourage you. <clears throat> what is it that you're all about? Have you considered that maybe that's why God designed you that way? So that you'd be useful to him. Uh, Bezalel here, right? This guy. I mean, clearly God's filled him with his spirit to do all of these things. Design artistic works of gold, silver, bronze, cutting jewels, carving wood, working all manner of workmanship. This man has been filled with the Holy Spirit in order to do these works. Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit to do mechanic work or plumbing? Or, I don't know, what? what? What is it you do? Teaching? You know, cooking? Do you consider it that way? You need to. You really need to. Because if you get your eyes set on somebody else saying, oh, if only someday I could be like them, you are wasting your time wishing that you had gifts that God has not given you. Now, maybe, maybe that fire in your heart to learn a new thing is the very thing the Lord has given you. Go pursue that, but, but understand me. Don't look on at somebody else and wish that you could be them spiritually. You've been given gifts, right? Not everybody is Bezalel here. Not everybody's going to show up and handle all of this artistry and metallurgy and stone cutting. Nobody's going to do There's a handful of people in all of Israel who have these capabilities. God's given these tasks to them. The other tasks that everyone else has to carry out are given to those other people. There's a whole crew behind this that their only job is to carry the tabernacle. Tear it down, pack it all up, and move it to the next location. Unbox it, set it all up for everyone to worship. Unfortunately, over the years, a bitterness grows in their heart. Some of you know that whole group and the scenario behind the rebellion of Korah. 
Levite priests given the job to care for, pack up, move, and set up the tabernacle. Get disgruntled with Aaron and Moses and decide, we want that job. And they try to take over. And Moses does a thing. There's a whole lot to this scenario. But the end game is, Moses says to Korah and all of his followers, you guys stand over there. Anybody that's with God, come over here and stand with me. That would be arrogant if it were, number one, not true. And then moments later, the ground opened up underneath Korah and all of his families and their children. And according to the scripture, they fell all the way into hell alive. Didn't die first and then go to hell. Ground opened up, swallowed them. Four, looking at someone else's position, coveting it, and trying to take it away from them. Tried to take Moses' job, Aaron's job, away from them. They had jobs given to them by the Lord as priests, anointed to minister, anointed by God to do the work of the ministry. Not content with it, they tried to take Moses' position, Aaron's position, and it cost them and their children and their families and everyone with them their lives. What's your job? What has God constructed you as? Will you please do that to the Lord? For everybody's benefit. If you look at it and say, this is the job God has given me. I'm going to do this as though I'm doing it for Jesus Christ. Do it the best you can. I can tell you what, your employer will be blessed, number one, without question. And then the list just goes down the road. For everyone else that's going to experience you being obedient to Christ and the calling on your life. Bezalel called to do this workmanship. And I, indeed I, have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Hamish, and the tribe of Dan. Verse 6. And I will put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it, all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the gold, pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with its utensils, the laver, the base, the garments, of ministry, the holy garments of Aaron, the priest, the garments of his son, to minister to the priests at, or as priests, and the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. You know this this commandment that is put forth for all of these things to be constructed. These are the people that are going to work on them. You know, I uh, first gave my life to Christ, um, as far as really committing my life to Christ. And started just working two jobs. Um, had been, you know, involved in crime and just recently gotten out of jail and got two jobs flipping burgers at uh, the Eagle's Nest and Brewer. Yeah. So, and then uh, pumping gas at Daigle Oil Company and uh, Brewer. And <clears throat> I caught on to this concept then. Um, young Christian, being in church, hearing this very passage, just really took it to heart of, wait a minute, so I can just flip burgers for God? I can just I can just pump gas for God? I don't have to try to become Dr. Will, somebody or other, to be special. I can just be what I'm doing and do it for God? There are still people today in the faith uh, serving the Lord in ministry who are a result of my time flipping burgers, and pumping gas. Co-workers, I led to Christ. People in that restaurant I just shared my faith with that started going to church. You know, we're still in fellowship with people to this day. You know, rented an apartment in, in Bangor, not so much thinking like, oh, this is a mission from God. But as we minister to the little girl that's downstairs, we become her babysitter. And now we have to tell her mother, you get to work so late. We have to go to church. Can we take your daughter to church? Yeah, take our daughter to church. Now the little girl is saying to the mom, will you come to church? And so, you know, Jessica Evans surrenders her life to Christ. And then her mother surrenders her life to Christ. And then Sam, her husband, is now the senior pastor of Calvary Chapel and Lincoln Fellowship. 
You know, you know, when you're babysitting the kid, are you thinking about, I am doing the will of the Lord right here? As you share your faith with him, as you pump gas, you get five seconds there to just tell somebody whatever you can. Listen, if we're all priests and we're all in the temple, if we're all pastors and we only come to church here, the world out there isn't going to hear. You have been specifically designed by Christ to be his minister in whatever environment he's put you in. That may be with many people in that environment or one. Don't be disheartened thinking, oh, I'm just a lesser Christian out here doing lesser things. Christ has us undercover everywhere. Share your faith wherever possible. You know, appoint your message to whoever will receive it. Colossians chapter 3, verse 23, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Oh, and that's important. So remember, it is not to men. You are not there just serving that employer, just, you know, serving that teacher. You're there serving Christ. And you may never get to speak. I'll share that story. That was one of the most startling things to me. A co-worker come in, start trying to tell me a dirty joke, and I'm saying, I'm not interested in that. Dago Oil Company, pumping gas. Three of my co-workers tell him, hey, don't stare. Will doesn't want to hear that. You stop sharing that joke. He won't stop. They take him outside and read him the riot act. I can see him out there just chewing this guy. He did try to rob the store four months later. But anyway, that guy... <laughs> At gunpoint. That guy, <clears throat> there in the moment, I wasn't saying, don't tell me something here. My co-workers usher this guy outside. And later, as we're deciding, you have to do that. They're all saying, no, we know you. We know you didn't want to hear that. I had never, working there, stopped everybody and said, hey, look, I just want to explain something, okay? Dirty jokes are really offensive to me, and I have really thin skin, so... You know, don't hurt my feelings. Please don't share any of those types of jokes. From now on, anybody does, no, just know you're in complete violation of my rule if you do. We never had that discussion at all. This guy just starts sharing, and my co-workers put an end to it. The testimony of my faith in their life. They understood it and took action on it. You never know to what degree you're being a testimony. I hadn't preached lengthy sermons to these men. They just understood, ah, that's not a joke Will's going to want to hear. And they put an end to it. My testimony, the testimony of Christ. Look at verse 12. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to all the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbath you shall keep, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sacrifices, <coughs> excuse me, sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. And now he gets very particular. This isn't just using that phrase of being cut off. You're going to be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work, on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. And on the seventh day, he rested and was refreshed. Now, just so we're clear, there's no requirement for us to go to church on Saturdays, the Sabbath. It is encouraged in the New Testament that we should have one day of the week where we worship the Lord, that we are setting time aside to one, not work, and two, to worship Him. There should be a day in your week, every week, that has that. Time for you to rest and recuperate. And then also for you to set your mind on the things of the Lord and to worship the Lord. It's a necessary element as far as our health as Christian goes, but not particularly that we do it on Saturday. Colossians chapter 2, 
verse 16 and 17 summarizes a lot of this study. So let no one judge you in food or in drink. You know, don't let anybody judge you based upon whether you eat things that the Jews would not eat or not. Or regarding a festival or new moon, any of the celebrations that the Jews would have participated in religiously, or Sabbaths. Don't let anybody judge you if you don't worship on Saturday. All of these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Right? If you truly are worshiping the Lord on Sunday, as we are, fine, acceptable. If you can't make it Sundays, but the midweek service of Thursday, when you're able to study and be taught and grow, where are you able to take a day each week and not work and also be in fellowship with the body of Christ and the Lord? That's what the Lord is encouraging us to do. 31.18, just to close, when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God, the actual Ten Commandments. Now, this unfortunately is the first occasion where Moses receives them, and he's going to come down off the mountain and be filled with anger, and he's going to shatter those two tablets, and they're going to have to be reconstructed. But God literally wrote his law out for us so that we would not have to wonder about what to follow. And I mean that about God's word, not just the Ten Commandments. The Bible, once again, is trustworthy. All of this nonsense you hear, oh, it's filled with contradictions. Oh, it was written by men. Oh, it's been translated by men and changed over time. All of those things are false. False. It's not true at all. So far, I've never met anybody that made those accusations who I said, okay, Prove it. What are you talking about? What do you mean? Usually just a lot of stuttering and stammering after that. Because they've heard that said about the Bible, but they've never investigated and researched. Not written by men. Not translated by men. Not changed by men. The Word of God is as trustworthy and as accurate as it ever has been. Right? If I'm your enemy, if I'm the devil himself, and I know that this is God's word, and that by reading it daily and living by it, it's going to change your life, I'm going to do everything I can to convince you that God's word is not trustworthy, that you should not listen to it, that you should not read it. That's the tactic of our enemy. And we want to be very careful about that when people say those things around us. <laughs> Just I would encourage you, even if you've not researched it, be bold enough to challenge them. Oh, the Bible's full of contradictions. Just lean over quick and say, name one. Name one. Because they usually don't even have one. One inmate in jail said, well, I don't find it a contradiction, but I'm confused about the fact that the Bible says in the Old Testament, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and in the New Testament, Jesus says, turn the other cheek. So how do those two things work together? Good question. The answer is, God was putting a restraint on how much you could injure somebody in the Old Testament. When they put your eye out, the farthest you could go was to put their eye out. You couldn't go any further than that. God was just putting parameters of retribution on that type of vengeful retaliation. Somebody knocks your tooth out, you can only knock their tooth out. You don't get to knock all their teeth out. You know. They've knocked your eye out. You don't get to blind them. You know, they've injured you. You don't get to go to their house and burn their barn to the ground and kill their family. You know, and this is the way the culture worked. Revenge. You've wronged my family. We're going to come and kill your whole family. So God was saying in the Old Testament, no, slow down. If there's going to be that type of retribution, it needs to simply be eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. You don't get to kill somebody's whole family because they knocked your tooth out. Come to the New Testament, Jesus is saying, when your enemy hits you, uh, turn your other cheek. Let him hit that one too. Those, those actually sound similar. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, when you put it in that light. And, hey, isn't it okay to let your enemy wrong you? There's not contradictions. There aren't errors here. There are just things 
to learn and know and understand this is the owner's manual to the human mind. Forget, you know, L. Ron Hubbard in his book Dianetics, which he claimed was the owner manual to the human mind. Mostly science fiction, but anyway. L. Ron Hubbard's a lunatic who's spent a tremendous amount of time using drugs and being involved in black magic. That's how he's written all those, his books, according to his son. These that contradict the word of God. You can trust the word. That's what I want to end with. You can trust the things that are written in here. The Ten Commandments that are given to us. We need to live our lives by what's written in the word. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, for your love, for this place, for the fellowship, Lord. Our brothers and sisters, I pray that you'd help us to minister to one another, that you'd fill us with your spirit, and help us to love you in the way that you want us to. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.